Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, Paul's letter to the local church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1. And we want to read two verses this morning, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and verse 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and verse 14. Here the scripture says, In whom ye also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The Apostle Paul is teaching the church at Ephesus that biblical worship flows out of the heart of a child of God who understands the word of God and who understands the the biblical foundation of God's salvation. He begins in verse 4 with uh, divine election. He moves to predestination in verse 5 and adoption and then to divine acceptance in verse 6. In verse 7, he taught us that our acceptance before our God is based upon uh, the redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that through that same redemption, we have forgiveness of sins. Last week, we saw that God's work of salvation included a spiritual inheritance reserved for us by God. All of the children of God are going to inherit the spiritual blessings that God has reserved for them. And then in verse 12, we saw that all that God has done for believers, He has done that He might be glorified among those believers, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ, verse 13, in whom? As verse 12 ends, with the phrase, trusted in Christ, and 13 opens up, in whom Paul is connecting all that he has said before to this next statement. His focus in the first verses, first uh, uh, 12 verses, has been on what God has done for us in saving us from our sins. Now he turns his focus upon those who are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 13, it says, In whom ye also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you were believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Again, the Apostle Paul uses that phrase that he is so uh, enthralled with, the phrase, in whom. Again, we see Paul pointing us back to our Lord Jesus Christ. He never points us to a time we walked down an aisle. He never points us to a prayer we prayed. He never points us to a baptism. He never points us to a membership in a church. He never points us to anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament spoke of him. The New Testament is a revelation of him. In whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You have put your faith and your confidence. He is the focus of all that God has ever done for his creation. I've mentioned this in previous messages. That God has never done one thing for his creation except that he did it through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. In whom you also trusted. All the members of the local church in Ephesus are mentioned in that word ye. The old English word ye uh, is plural. You have to study words to know that. 
All of the new translations take the ye and change it to you. And uh, it takes away from the impact of the word of God. Paul is saying to this church, ye, all of you, every member of this church has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not writing a letter to is not writing a letter to a local church in the city of Ephesus knowing that he that these are people who are just religious. He's not writing a letter to this church knowing that these people have somehow or another missed Christ. He is writing a letter to people that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that helps us see Paul's thinking in two areas. The first is the true nature of salvation. When Paul writes this letter to this church, he defines for us in these verses that we've been studying for however many weeks now, the true nature of salvation. But also now introduces us and begins to introduce us something of the true nature of a local church. These two truths can be drawn out of verse 13. First, no sinner is ever saved. No sinner is ever forgiven of their sins. No sinner is ever made a child of God unless he has first believed the gospel message. All of that comes to him through the gospel message. In whom you have also believed. Also trusted. There are those who would say that a person is a child of God on the basis of their election. I'm not going to argue with you over that. I'm just going to say verse 12 and 13 and 14, especially 13 says, if you haven't believed in Christ, you have no grounds for believing that you are a child of God. None. If you have believed in Christ, on the other hand, then you have some foundation for which you can say with some authority from God's word, and I have been forgiven through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By the grace of God, I'm a child of God, adopted into his family. The second thing that we need to look at here is all the members of a biblical church should be those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. From that truth, we may be assured that which was written sometime after 60 A.D. is as true as it was then for today. We may take these two truths and settle it from Scripture that no one is a Christian who has not called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and no one should be a member of a church except those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You also trusted. Paul is saying that those who were professing Christians in the church at Ephesus had already trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. A New Testament church is not a church whose members are seeking by their good works to be saved from their sins. It is not a church whose members are seeking to have their sins washed away in the baptismal pool. It is not a church whose members are seeking forgiveness week in and week out by coming to the table. A New Testament church is not a church whose members are trying to get saved. They are a group of people who have already trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. A New Testament church is not a church whose members include babies. There are churches, or there are people who call themselves churches out there in this area and in the world who include in their membership babies who have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been sprinkled or dipped or, 
or port or whatever they have done to them and they have been declared to be members of the church but they are not members of the church until they have first trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, New Testament church is made up of sinners who have first trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to think that I am being redundant this morning and I will probably be redundant this morning but this truth needs to be hammered home. Paul thought it was important enough to include in the 13th verse of the first chapter of this letter that lasts for six chapters. The New Testament opens with the gospel being preached. It had already been preached in the Old Testament, but the New Testament opens with the gospel being preached. It was preached by John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders came to John and said, Who are you? Why are you baptizing? It's a Pat Horner paraphrase, but you can read it there in John chapter 1. And John responds to them. Verse 19, and this is the record of John. This is what he said. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? We drop down to verse 23. He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. My call, my, my duty, my responsibility in my ministry is to make straight the way of the Lord, to make a straight path to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to convolute it. Not to preach a message that takes a right hand and a left hand and goes down in a valley and over a mountain and nobody understands. But to preach the need for sinners to repent and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And so he says in verse 29, the next day, after answering them in verse 23, verse 29 of John chapter 1 says, And the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, and he's saying it out loud as a prophet of God to all that will hear, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The sin of the world. And he's pointing that, that crooked old finger to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, I'm not the one, I'm just a voice. He is the one you need to be focused on. He is the one who is the Lamb of God. He is the one who can take away the sin of sinners. He is the one. And from the opening pages of the New Testament, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has been declared to sinners. And men have called upon sinners to trust the Lord with their soul and to trust the Lord with salvation and to trust the Lord with forgiveness of sins. To trust God to make them a child of God and put away their works and their ideas that somehow or another by their own goodness and by what they do, God will turn our head and look upon them and smile. None of that is acceptable to God. And though the Lord Jesus Christ ministered to Samaritans and Gentiles during his earthly ministry, Yet the primary focus of his ministry was to the Jew first. And as he went about Galilee preaching to the Jew first, he didn't leave off the Gentile or the Samaritan, but to the Jew first, he preached a message that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man cometh unto the Father but by me. He preached a message of the necessity of repentance and believing the gospel. His Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 and, and 14 and 15 and 16. He says as he enters into his ministry after John is put in prison. He came into Galilee preaching that men ought to repent and believe the gospel message. 30 plus years later. Paul sits down or 20 something plus years later and pins a letter in a Roman prison to a church at Ephesus and says, you also trusted. You also trusted. The book of Acts opens 
with the apostles focus on the ministry among the Jews first. As they preached in Jerusalem under the command of God in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ before he ascended to take his place on his throne. He said to them, you start in Jerusalem and then you go out into Samaria and then, and then, and then you exceed all the way to the uttermost parts of the world. And so they did that in obedience to him. They began there and God began to save Jews and add them to the church in Jerusalem. But despite all that emphasis upon the Jews, the New Testament teaches this, that it had always been God's plan that Gentiles should also hear the gospel. And that they who believe the gospel message should be saved. So in the early days of the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, we see God not only saving Jews, but in, John, in Acts 10, we see him saving Samaritans. And then in not only saving Samaritans, but we see him opening up the door for Greeks and for Gentiles. And by the time we come to chapter 11, the church of Jerusalem is sending uh, uh, emissaries over to Antioch to see what God had done among the Gentiles. And by the time we come to chapter 13, the Holy Spirit is working through that church to send missionaries to the whole known world. And Paul's response after his first and second missionary journey was, I want to tell you what God has done among the Gentiles. What God has done among the Gentiles. And by the time Paul, God saves the Apostle Paul and calls him, the focus has moved from the Jews to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13, verse 45 through 48, Paul is addressing Jews. Acts chapter 13 in verse 45. He says, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, that is, the multitudes of the Gentiles rejoicing in Paul's message, when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Now, I've been recently teaching on that. They were filled with a, a hatred toward them. Because they had something. God had given them something that he had not given those Jews. And they hated them. They were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul. Spoke against the gospel, contradicting and blaspheming. Contradicting Paul's message and blaspheming God for the message. And then, in that atmosphere, Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken unto you. He's speaking to the Jews. But, pay special attention to the next words. But, seeing you have put it from you. Acts 13 and verse 46. Seeing you have put my message, seeing you put God's message, seeing you put the gospel message away from you. And judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. You see, dear one, you put the gospel aside. You put the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ aside. And you have made a judgment that you are not worthy of everlasting life. Only through the gospel message will you come into possession of everlasting life through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. They put his message aside, they contradicted it, they blasphemed it, and judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. And Paul continues in verse 46 saying, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. There's a turning point in history regarding true Christianity on the face of the earth. Verse 47 opens up, for so hath the Lord commanded us. Paul did not turn from the Jews to the Gentiles on a whim. Paul did not turn from the Jews to the Gentiles because he thought it was a better idea on how to build a ministry. He did not turn from the Jews to the Gentiles because he wanted to build a bigger church. He turned from the Jews to the Gentiles because God commanded him to do so. 
God commanded him to turn from the Jews and leave them with their message, with their hatred of the Messiah, with their hatred of the truth of the gospel, and go to the Gentiles saying, I have set thee as to be a light to the Gentiles that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And verse 48 says, and when the Gentiles heard that, or heard this, Acts 13, 48, they were glad that God had not left them without a message that could bring them into the kingdom of God. They were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. They rejoiced in what God was doing with his word among them. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They believed the message. They believed the message. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1 and verse 13. By 70 AD, a judicial blindness had settled down upon the Jewish people. And the primary focus of the final days of the New Testament was it would be among the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentile comes. And that haven't arrived yet. The gospel came to Ephesus in the midst of this kind of an atmosphere, in the midst of this history. Jesus Christ died sometime around 32 or 33 A.D., however you want to figure that out, or 30. I've heard everything from 28 to 33, so y'all figure it out. You let me know, all right? It depends on which commentary you read. From whatever time he died to A.D. 53, the gospel had been spreading. And sometime around AD 53, and the commentaries are all over the place on this too, the Apostle Paul arrives in a city in Asia to preach the gospel. Acts 18 and verse 19. And he, Paul, came to Ephesus. Praise the Lord. Acts 18 and verse 19. He came to Ephesus. He left a gospel team there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He hasn't, as he writes in other epistles, he hadn't forsaken preaching the gospel to them. He simply understood God, that they were under judicial blindness of God, but still God was going to save his people out of them. And in order to do that, he had to preach the gospel to them. So Paul left a gospel team there and as was his custom would enter into the synagogue and preach the gospel that Jesus is Messiah and he is the only one who can save you from your sins and works before God is, a is condemned by him he left from there to go to Jerusalem and so he sits there now in prison in Rome to write a letter to these people. He'd been there. He saw what God did. And he says, you also believed. You also believed. You also trusted. You trusted Jesus Christ after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The trust that believers in the church at Ephesus had put in the Lord Jesus Christ was not some emotional decision pulled out of them by some high-powered preacher who could play on the emotions of people or psychologically manipulate them. It was not some emotional decision or some psychologically manipulated decision. Instead, it was faith based upon what God Himself had said. The heart had been opened to believe what God said. This becomes critical for the rest of true gospel preaching in the history of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul had come to them to preach a message which he called the word of truth. See that in verse 13? After that, 
in whom you also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth, comma, explaining it further, the gospel of your salvation. So that the phrase, the word of truth, defines the gospel of our salvation. And the gospel of our salvation must be founded upon the word of truth if it is going to be the true gospel. You also trusted after you heard something. You trusted after you heard something preached to you. The apostle had come to them to preach a message that he called truth. And he took it from the word of God because it's the word of truth. And it came from God himself. The preaching the preaching the gospel message must be directly related to the salvation of sinners. The word of truth is the gospel of salvation. Preaching the gospel message must be directly related to the salvation of sinners. And is absolutely necessary for sinners to be saved. No sinner is ever saved without hearing or reading the gospel message. Listen to the scriptures on the word of truth first, and then we'll come to the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul calls the gospel the gospel of God. It is not Paul's message. It is not an offshoot of Judaism. It is not an offshoot of paganism. It is God's gospel. It is God's message. God gave it. God is the one who gave it to his apostles and to his prophets. In John chapter 8, in verse 40, when God walked on the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, at the very same time, Jesus stood before the Jews. In John chapter 8, they wanted to kill him, and he said, I'm a man that have told you the truth. Why are you trying to kill me? I'm a man that told you the truth. And they didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear they were lost. They didn't want to hear the gospel. The word of truth is the word that has come out of the mouth of God himself. Who, and a God who cannot lie. Matthew 4, 4, God says that man should live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We have a standard in the scriptures given to us on how we are to live as Christians. Every word that comes out of this book is our standard. Oh, Brother Pat, that's a lot of words. Yeah, we got a duty to read. We got a duty to think. We got a duty to meditate. We got a duty to learn. Because every word that came out of the mouth of God tells us how to live, how Christians live in a world that hates their God. In John chapter 17, as our Lord is praying shortly before he goes to the cross, he says, Thy word is truth. John 17, verse 17. The word of truth is a message taken from the holy, inspired, preserved word of God from the scriptures. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, 2 Timothy 3, 15, he says that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. You know, most of the new translations put in the... Um, I was going to go there and I lost it. Sacred writings. That actually could be one of the translations of the word sacred writings. But do you know why the translators of the 1611 use holy scriptures instead of sacred writings? One of the reasons that I believe they used it. Because every religion of the world has sacred writings. Only Christians have scriptures. Every time the word scripture shows up or scripture shows up in the word of God, it's referring to what God has said. And even if it's copied, it's referring to what God has said. And even if it's translated into another language, it's referring to what God has said. <laughs> Study it for yourself. There's over 50 references to the word scripture in a scripture. <laughs> Search for yourself to see if these things are not true. 
the word of truth has come out of the mouth of God. And when Paul writes to Timothy, young Timothy who's probably 40 years old, uh, Paul is an older man now, he writes to young Timothy, and he's probably 40 or something like that, and he says, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures from a child, and then he adds this phrase, which are able to make you wise unto salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. You study the Word of God, it has a message about Jesus Christ and salvation. When Paul was preaching to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 13 to the, the church, uh, to the uh, sinners in Thessalonica, he says concerning their salvation, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, listen to the words here, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, When you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, and that's what they were preaching. They were preaching the word of God, which you heard of us. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Those sinners in Thessalonica had more sense than people today. When Paul was preaching to them, they did not say, well, that's the word of a man. They said, that's the word of God. Well, Paul's preaching, isn't he a man? That's the word of God. All of a sudden, the man preaching becomes insignificant. And what they are hearing is out of the mouth of God. Out of the mouth of God. And God saved them. And later, Paul writes them. And says, I thank God, because when I preached, what you heard was not a man's word, but you heard God say something. Because it came from his book, his scripture. God uses the word of truth in the process of saving sinners. Are you listening to me? If you do not believe the scriptures to be the word of God this morning, you cannot be saved. <laughs> Brother Pat... Can't every sinner in the world be saved? Not if they don't believe the Word of God. Not if they don't believe the Word of God. They cannot be saved. Oh, that's a strong statement coming from this pulpit. Are you sure about that? Listen to the Scriptures. Again, the final authority for what we believe. James chapter 1, verse 18. James, speaking of God's work in salvation of sinners, of his own will, speaking of God's will, begat he us, birthed us, the new birth, being born again, begat he us, of his own will, we are born again, or begat he us, how? With the word of truth. With, comes from a Greek word that means through the means of, or through the instrumentality of the Word of God. God uses the Word of God to save sinners from their sins. God saves sinners under the preaching of the Word of God, under the reading of the Word of God, under the, uh, and gives them understanding as they're hearing or reading God's Word. God saves them, but He uses His Word to do so. Out of His own will, we are born again through the instrumentality of God's Word. James chapter 1, verse 18. Is that the only reference in the Scripture, Brother Pat? No, no, no. No, no, not at all. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see what Peter says concerning it. 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 1, I want you to turn with me to verse 23, and we want to read three verses, 23, 24, and 25. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, being born again, this is God's work, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of 
incorruptible, and we could add the word seed without violating it, but he, do, he doesn't, but of incorruptible, notice the next word, by the word of God, through the means of or by the instrumentality of the word of God. What Peter is saying in these first few words of verse 23 is we are born again when God uses His Word. I'd say, Brother Pat, how does God do that? I don't know. And when you can find, when you find out, you go, let me know. All I know is when God, when a man is preaching and he's preaching the Word of God, God opens a man's heart and he understands it and he calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. And then there's a mysterious work here that I cannot explain. And volumes have been written on the subject and still men have not plumbed the depth of that statement. The Scripture simply tells us we are born again through the instrumentality of the Word of God. Let's continue reading. The Word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For the reason why God uses His Word is because all flesh is as grass. And all the glory man is as a flower grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away because men are a fading object and a failing object. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Are we preaching uh, Augustine's message? Are we preaching Calvin's message? Are we preaching Luther's message? Are we preaching John Knox's message? Are we preaching, um, I don't know, John R. Rice's message? He's a, a Baptist in the 50s, 70s. Are we preaching a man's message? A man who's dead and gone and, and finished? Or are we preaching a message from the enduring Word of God that does not fade away and die? Which one, brother? From the word of God. So Peter continues. But. Men fade like grass. Men fade like flowers. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And connected with that. Everlasting authority. And, and uh, assurance. Of the, of, the, of the inerrancy of God's word. Is this statement. And this is the word. Which by the gospel. Is preached unto you. Paul wasn't preaching the word of the rabbis. He was preaching the word of God. We're not preaching the word of what men have to say about the word of God. We're preaching the word of God. In whom also you, after that, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, after that, after that you believed, Ephesians 1.13, after that belief, you believed in believing the word of God and believing the gospel of your salvation, the believers in Ephesus had believed on the person of and his work. You notice Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, in whom you also trusted, and then switches, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then comes back again to in whom... So that they are not confused about what he is saying here. They had believed on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the phrase, in whom, after mentioning the word of God, not in what you have believed. Now, we're supposed to believe the word of God, aren't we, brethren? <laughs> yes. But the word of God leads us to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes, in whom you believed immediately after saying that they had believed the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. This is teaching us that the gospel message is not a list of things for you to do. Here's the word of God. Here's a list from the word of God. You do this, you're going to be saved. That is not what Paul is saying here. He is saying, here's the word of God. It talks about a person who can save you from your sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's also why I don't use such tracts as the Romans wrote and other things. You may use it, that's fine, as long as you explain it. But I don't use a list 
Because the word of God is a message about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he has done on behalf of sinners. And I've seen God save people, and so have you. But not because they followed a 1, 2, 3 ABC list, but because God showed them in the scripture that Jesus was the only Savior. So, the gospel message is not a list of things for you to do. It is not even a list of things for you to believe. Paul does not say what you believe. He says whom you believe. When the gospel is preached, men are given a lot of information. They're given information about their true spiritual condition. They're sinners. Their true condition is their inability to save themselves. They're given information about false religions, perhaps. If you're a Jew, that Judaism cannot save you. If you're a Roman Catholic, that Roman Catholicism cannot save you. They're given a lot of information. They're given information about who God is and, and what God has done on behalf of sinners and Jesus Christ. Who is He and what has He done on behalf of, of sinners? There's a lot of information in the gospel message. But it is not a list of things for you to believe. He points them back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I've raised the question, how much does a sinner have to believe in order to be saved? And one time early in my ministry, uh, I ran across a man who said, if in repentance, if, if you didn't cry this many tears, if you didn't mourn this long, if you didn't grieve this long over your sin, you weren't a Christian. I said to him, chapter and verse. All I need. You got something to say? I'll listen. At the end, if I ask for proof, I'm wanting it from the Word of God. He said faith, and he, they, they actually had a mourner's bench up here. And they divided, they divided the world into three groups, this, this people did. Sinners, and saved, and um, quickened sinner. Somebody had an interest in God but hadn't yet closed with Christ. And they sat on a mourner's bench in the front of the church. This man believed in the doctrines of grace. And he took a precious gospel message and twisted it and turned it into something where if you didn't follow this list of things, you were not a Christian. Paul says God saves sinners through the word of God and it points you to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you come to Christ with your sin and have you come to Christ for the redemption that, uh, to, to, to cleanse you from your sin and to forgive you of your sin? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't tell me what you believed. Don't tell me what you did. Tell me about Jesus Christ. I've been in the ministry since 1979. I've asked Southern Baptists and others that claim to be Christians, tell me when God saved you. Well, uh, you know, I was baptized when I was 12. You know, I don't do that face when I'm standing in front of them, but inside of me that face is going on. Why? Why? Why is my heart grieved at that statement? Why? Because they're pointing back at a baptism instead of Jesus Christ. Really? When the soul that is saved loves the Lord Jesus Christ and he is precious to them. The gospel message is about a person and what he has done on behalf of sinners to save them from their sins. It's about a God who loves sinners. It's about a God who sent his son because he loves sinners. It's about the son of God, God in the flesh, going to Calvary's cross and taking upon himself their sin to pay for their sins in their place he stood. And God, as it were, piled my sin on the Son of God and God judged Him for my sin. And Jesus gave me His righteousness in place of my sin. 
The gospel message is about what Jesus Christ has done at Calvary's cross. He didn't just die, He was buried. And after He was buried, He rose again. And He rose again, and He preached that same message again, and He then uh, sent those that were saved into the world to tell them that Jesus Christ has died for sinners. And that anyone who repents of their sins and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ may be saved. Anyone who repents of their sins and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ may be saved. Listen to what he wrote to the Romans, this man called the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, Brother Pat, don't you think we ought to guard up that word whosoever and redefine it? No, I don't. Whosoever. Aren't you afraid that maybe one of the elect won't get saved? Are you? God might make a mistake saving the sinner. What foolish things people say. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why then, how shall they call on him? In whom they have not heard, or in whom they have not believed. You see, you have to trust, you have to believe. And so, believing comes, and when believing comes, you call. And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? They have to hear the gospel message. And how shall they hear? Without a preacher. God calls a preacher and God sends him and he preaches and they hear. And when they hear, they believe. And when they believe, they call. What are you hearing this morning if you're here without Christ? Are you hearing that He's a Savior who can save you from your sins? What are you hearing this morning? Just a man up here ranting and raving for a few minutes. What are you hearing this morning? There's a Savior who can save sinners. And only God can do that. I know that. But you will not call upon Him without believing, and you will not believe without hearing, and you will not hear without a preacher. So after that you believed God put His seal upon you. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is a one-time act which occurs at the time when a sinner believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. This seal that God is talking about here, the Spirit of God, God Himself in you, which is a hope of glory, this seal is God's mark on you that you are His and He is yours. God has marked you out in a world of darkness as a child of light. God has marked you out as a world, uh, in a world of death as a child of life. God has marked you out in a world of sinners as a saint. As a, in a world of unbelievers as a believer. God marked you. He put a stamp on you. You say, Brother Pat, I haven't found it yet. No, but God sees it. The devils in hell see it. Satan knows it. Paul, I know. Hmm? Hell knows about a church, about a preacher that's preaching the gospel. Angels know it because God sends them to minister to us. God knows it because He's the one that put the stamp there. The seal. You study that word seal out. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, quickly, God's going to destroy Jerusalem and with it Judah. Israel's already gone. The other ten and a half tribes, or ten, nine and a half tribes, already gone. There's two and a half tribes left. Judah has stayed firm over 200 more years than Israel did. And now judgment is about to fall. And the Babylonian nation is going to destroy everything. And God says, stop. History stands still. 
And God says, you go down there and you mark them that are mine. You mark those that sigh in Israel. You mark those that, whose hearts grieve for what they are seeing in the world they live in. You mark them out and you do not touch them. They are mine. And that angel with a sword is just waiting for judgment to come, for God to send him. And God says, stop. I'm going to mark out my own first. And don't you harm them. That carries over in the book of Revelation. It shows up throughout the scriptures. And Paul writes about it here in the book of Ephesians. You were sealed. You got the mark of God on you. The world's mark is not on your forehead. God's mark is. The world's mark is not on your heart. God's mark is. You have been separated unto God. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is testimony from God himself that you are mine and I am yours. And we go through this world and we struggle and we fall and we turn to the right hand or to the left and we... We, 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 you know the story. And God says, you see that one down there? That one's mine. You see that down there? That one's mine. All you got to do is read the book of Job to know that. You see this one? I got my mark on him. You do whatever you want to do. I'm limiting you what you can do, but that one is mine. He's a righteous man. And I've made him righteous. Whatever God does, whatever you end up doing, God doesn't change. And as Paul writes to this church that is struggling in many areas, he says to them, when I came and preached, you believed the gospel. And when you did, God saved you. It doesn't take long to find out they got some problems in that church. But God saved them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, bless your word to the